Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Handel. I decided three years ago it might be fun to look back at all the guests we met during the year. So to close out 2022, we will revisit these podcasts for new listeners and maybe for those who tune in on a regular or irregular basis. In addition, I'll give you a sneak preview of my guests for the early part of 2023. Over the last year, we have crossed the country, meeting guests from Washington, D.C., Washington State, Texas, Connecticut, New Jersey, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Maryland, California, and Florida. We began with a young woman on staff at Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, a nonprofit based in D.C., who went to prison at age 13 and got out 17 years later at age 30. Catherine Jones has become an advocate for women and mothers who struggle with abuse and the effects of incarceration. The campaign is dedicated to abolishing life without parole for young people. All children deserve a second chance is the mantra of the campaign. Andrea Elliott, Andrea, she likes her name pronounced that way, won a Pulitzer Prize for her book, Invisible Child, a book which took eight years to complete. It's the story of one homeless blended family in Brooklyn eight children and two parents. The oldest child is the resilient survivor of the book. Her name is Dasani. At age 11, at the start of the book, we follow her during the many challenges of her young life. The family occupies a 520 square foot room at Auburn Family Residence in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, a homeless shelter. There are 104,000 homeless children in New York City alone, according to documentation between 2021 and 2022. Elliot's book opens with a quote I particularly liked. For these are all our children. We will profit from or pay for what they become. That's James Baldwin. Robin Ledbetter is a young woman I met in 2009 after reading a story she wrote, which appeared in a book called I'll Fly Away, a book edited by novelist Wally Lamb. It was a compilation of stories and poems composed by women incarcerated at York Prison in Niantic, Connecticut. My husband and I began visiting Robin 13 years ago, and now she is free after serving 25 years, starting at the age of 14. We met Robin on the podcast in early 2022, about seven months after her release. And here's an update. She is now in school full-time, working to get her commercial driver's license. Next April, she will graduate. She's living in her own apartment in Hartford and doing well. She was our guest for Thanksgiving dinner last month. We had not seen her since October of 2019 due to the pandemic. A great reunion. Jennifer Toon and Alexa Garza met in a Texas prison decades ago. Now Jennifer, a published writer, 
works for the Coalition for Texans with Disabilities. She was incarcerated as a teen and spent nearly 20 years in prison. Alexa learned to be a braille writer in prison, a two-year training program. It's given her a skill to support herself now. There's 38 prison programs teaching people to transcribe print books into braille in 28 states in the United States. We had the pleasure of meeting Professor Laura Cohen from Rutgers Law School and Hugh Burton. Her focus is juvenile justice. Professor Cohen represented Mr. Burton, who was 16 when he was wrongfully convicted of the murder of his mother. He served 20 years. This case stands out as it is a case of false confession. And in February of 2023, we will meet Dr. Saul Casson, author of a brand new book titled Duped, featuring many cases of false confessions, particularly among young adolescents. Hugh's case is covered in the book. Professor Kristen Henning spoke to us about her new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Professor Henning is a professor of law at Georgetown University, where she and her students represent youth accused of delinquency. We spoke of trying children in adult court, sentencing them as adults, sending them to adult prisons. The case of Khalif Browder is a particularly heartbreaking example. Held at Rikers Island between 2010 and 2013 without a trial, he was accused of stealing a backpack containing valuables. He was in solitary for 700 days. He was only 16. Once he was released and his case dismissed, he suffered from the trauma of solitary confinement and incarceration. He ended up taking his life at age 22. Eric Barsness is the executive director of Puppies Behind Bars, an organization founded in 1997, they just celebrated their 25th anniversary, by Gloria Stoga. Based in New York City, its purpose is to train men and women inside six prisons in New York and New Jersey to work with the puppies. The goal is to give those dogs to disabled veterans who struggle with PTSD and other war-related injuries. Also on our show that day was Gilbert Molina, a man who did time and now is on staff at Puppies Behind Bars. This is a terrific organization because the puppies, incarcerated men and women, and our vets are all winners. Co-directors Allison Langer and Andrea Askowitz have their own podcast called Writing Class Radio. They encourage people behind bars to submit creative writing to their show, and it's posted for others to read. Sometimes the author gets to read it on the podcast. The aim is to sharpen writing skills you already have and keep improving. And not all the contributing authors are incarcerated. Tune in to Writing Class Radio to hear the writers share their work. Two people working with youth impacted by having a parent, a sibling, or a close relative in prison 
are from the Pathfinder, the Pathfinder, sorry, network in Portland, Oregon. Leticia Longoria Navarro, executive director, and Victor Trillo were our guests back in July. Victor leads a club for high school students at Park Rose High School in Portland, kids who deal with someone they love who is locked up. There is safety in the club because everyone understands the unique thread that ties each person in the club together. Victor was incarcerated himself. Leticia reaches out to families dealing with the prison system in Oregon. I came across an article in Atlanta magazine about mothers in prison in Georgia. After reading the article, I found a way to reach Amy Ard, founder and director of Motherhood Beyond Bars. She agreed to be a guest on my show, and she invited Vanessa Garrett to join her. Amy's nonprofit supports pregnant women who are in prison. In Georgia, women are not permitted to keep their babies after delivery. And just so you know, only eight prisons in the country have a mother-baby nursery where babies can remain with their mothers after birth for up to 18 months. That's not very many prisons. Motherhood Beyond Bars helps the caregivers who choose to step in and care for the infants until mom is released. Amy told us 95% of the babies go to a family member and only 5% to foster care. Vanessa was pregnant and incarcerated. She shared her own story with us. Now she is the program director for the organization. Her job is to stay connected to all the families, making sure they have what they need. This is a wonderful nonprofit filling a vital need for mothers in Georgia. Celeste Trusty is the secretary for the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons. She invited Akeem Sims and Naomi Blount Wilson, both of whom were granted pardons. This was the first time anyone from a parole or a board of pardons had been on pursuing justice. Naomi served 37 years in prison, starting at age 32. She was granted a pardon in 2019 and now is a commutation specialist, a job given to her by Lieutenant Governor Fetterman. We learned about the process of being granted a pardon and how rare that is. It truly affords the recipients a second chance. Professor Rachel Lopez from Drexel University and her two guests co-wrote a scholarly article for the Northwestern Law Review in 2021 entitled Redeeming Justice. Professor Lopez teaches law and she invited Kempis, also known as Ghani Songster, and Terrell, also known as Rel Carter, um, both of whom served 30 years each in prison in Pennsylvania. These three people wrote a 66-page article about redemption, making the point that 
all humans should have a legal right to redemption, that change is always possible. REL had just been released two months before we recorded our podcast. Both men are doing advocacy work at the same time, making higher education a priority. We spent time discussing the concept of death by incarceration, which is another name for life without parole. Our fourth guest that day was Atsa Sharma Pokharel, a lawyer. She submitted a formal complaint to the UN about life without parole, citing it as torture. We delved into higher education with guests from San Quentin and Goucher College. Jody Lewin is a friend of mine whom I last saw when my husband and I visited a college program at San Quentin Prison in California about a dozen years ago. That program was called Prison University Project. It offered college courses to the men at San Quentin. Jody expanded that program, and it is now Mount Tamalpais College, a fully accredited institution of higher learning. Jody is the president. A few years ago, former President Barack Obama awarded her the National Humanities Medal, a very great honor. With Jody on the program was Tommy Winfrey, a graduate of Prison University Project and also San Diego State. I think a favorite quote of mine is perfect here. Quote, it's never too late to become what you might have been. Offering a college degree to people doing time <clears throat> is not just a gift. It reduces recidivism reduces violence in prison, increases self-esteem, and opens up the world to those living behind barbed wire. Continuing the topic of higher education, we met the director of Goucher <clears throat> Prison Education Partnership in Maryland. Her name is Eliza Cornejo. Cornejo. Goucher partners with two prisons, a men's and a women's facility, to offer college courses. <clears throat> Eliza invited Ramika Robinson Peoples to join us. Ramika spent time in prison, but is now completing her BA on campus at Goucher. These programs both offer college degrees a great achievement for those doing time, a badge of honor to take with them as they re-enter society. We enjoyed a series of podcasts with a dear friend of mine, the director of Innocence Project of Florida, someone I have known since 2009. His name is Seth Miller. He shared a number of success stories from the last two years. We had, uh, I believe, eight people who were exonerated. And that is such a challenge given the pandemic was throughout those two years. But in addition to the victories that Innocence Project of Florida had, 
he told us about a new podcast he has a part in called Bone Valley. It features the 35-year-old case of Leo Schofield, a man wrongfully accused of killing his teenage wife back in 1987 in Florida. Seth is counsel for Leo attempting to win his freedom after all these years. The final podcast of the year featured two women from Prison Pet Partnership, an organization in a women's prison in Washington State. Meg Quinlivan and Connie Moyer were our guests. It was founded by Sister Pauline Quinn, a Dominican sister, way back in 1981. Now, as a result of that program, 200 prison dog programs have been created thanks to this first one. Meg is now the executive director of Prison Pet Partnership, and Connie graduated from the program and is now in um, South Carolina and the executive director of the Humane Society of Greenwood, South Carolina. Just a personal note, I feel very strongly about nonprofit organizations that do great work and are rated well on Charity Navigator. I always check them to be sure. After every podcast I do, which highlights a nonprofit, I send them a donation. And if you wish to support any of these organizations on my podcast this year, let me just read the names of each organization again. The Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. And if you just put them on Google, they'll tell you, you know, where they are and how to donate. Puppies Behind Bars. The Pathfinder Network. Motherhood Beyond Bars, Goucher Prison Education Partnership, The Innocence Project of Florida, Mount Tamil Pius College, that's T-A-M-A-L-P-A-I-S in San Quentin, California, Prison Pet Partnership, and the Greenwood, South Carolina, Humane Society. And now a sneak peek at what we have planned for 2023. We'll start the year by speaking to three authors of brand new books. Margaret Burnham, author of By Hands Not Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. Chris Fabricant, author of Junk Science, and that is a fascinating topic. Dr. Saul Casson, author of Duped About False Confessions. The cast of The Exonerated, uh, way back in, I think, early 2021, I interviewed the writers of that play, and this play was put on in theater in Connecticut, and the cast is willing to come on the show. Uh, and the director of Penn America. Penn stands for um, Poets, Essayists, and Novelists. 
It's a hundred year old organization. And every year they sponsor a prison writing contest for people in prison. And Robin um, Ledbetter, my adopted daughter, won a prize uh, from them with one of her essays. I want to close out our final podcast by giving you a little taste of a book we will be talking about in depth and, of course, meeting the author. And I just mentioned that book. Um, It's called Duped. It's written by Dr. Saul Kasson, who is a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan. And I found the preface to his book fascinating. And the word duped obviously means um, to trick somebody into confessing a, uh, a crime that they have never committed. So the preface to his book is really fascinating. And it, it is called Why I Wrote This Book. When I was in sixth grade, Mrs. Avery was my teacher, young and fresh off a stint in the Peace Corps in Uganda. She had slides to show class and stories to tell. Growing up in Brooklyn, I was mesmerized by her worldly experiences. One of our first written homework assignments was to read a biography and write a book report. For me, the biographical subject was easy, Mickey Mantle. Having become baseball conscious after the Dodgers left town in 1958 and before the Mets arrived in 1962, I was a Yankees fan. It didn't hurt that they were perennial World Series champions. Switch hitting center fielder Mickey Mantle, wearing the number seven on his back, was my pinstriped hero. Somewhere, I might still have reel-to-reel tapes of his home runs as they were broadcast on the radio. I read a biography, and then a second. I was only 12, but I liked to write. Later that year, I wrote a short story, which I still have, about an inventor who patented a wristwatch that could regulate body temperature. The point is, this book report was to me a labor of love. Plus, I really wanted to impress Mrs. Avery. It was a Friday afternoon when she returned everyone's graded handwritten papers. I was so excited to get my grade. She called my name. And then she glared at me and I looked down to see an F circled and in red. I was stunned. I went up to her after class thinking it had to be a mistake. No mistake. She flunked me on the paper because she said I plagiarized it. Mrs. Avery didn't ask if I plagiarized nor did she try to get me to admit it. Very simply, she accused me and convicted me, both in the same sentence. End of conversation. I don't remember what I said, if anything. All I can recall is the powerful urge to hold back tears. I was too old to cry with dignity in front of her or in front of my classmates. 
So I walked out in silence, trying like hell to keep it together. That stoic face lasted until I opened the door at home, saw my mother, and broke down. My mother is my hero for what happened next, and I will add, for so much more. She knew I'd spent a whole lot of time on that assignment. When I told her what happened, she beelined for Mrs. Avery, who assumed I had copied my report right off a book jacket. She didn't have proof, she said, just the sense the paper was too well written. I wasn't there, but my mother told her to find proof of plagiarism or apologize. She went to the library, apparently, found no proof, changed the grade, and apologized. I tell this story because I will not forget my sense of helplessness at being accused of something I didn't do and discerning no good way to defend myself. Add the highest of stakes to that experience and you will understand in part why the subject matter animates me. Fast forward a half a century or so. Over the course of my career, I have collected some shocking research data and I have witnessed some horrifying miscarriages of justice. I've seen police extract confessions from young teenagers and other vulnerable suspects using jaw-dropping forms of deception and implied and sometimes explicit promises and threats. I've seen police trick mothers out of their sons' interrogations. In one instance, switching rooms after a bathroom break, not telling her where they moved, and inducing her 13-year-old son to confess. I've seen police outright lie about evidence to break someone down into a state of despair. For example, telling a suspect falsely about his fingerprints on the weapon, his hair in the victim's grasp, an eyewitness identification, or the results of an allegedly failed polygraph exam. I've seen judges unwilling to serve as the gatekeeper they get, gatekeepers they get paid to be by failing to exclude from evidence confessions that were quite clearly coerced, not voluntary. I've seen prosecutors bend logic until it breaks, refusing to concede innocence despite DNA results that excluded the confessor without doubt, and identified the actual perpetrator. I've read contemporaneous newspaper accounts during trial that accepted the government's public relations spin on the case, hook, line, and sinker. I've received heart-wrenching letters from countless prisoners, many of whom were later absolved, and desperate family members writing on their behalf. I've been cross-examined by hostile prosecutors, one of whom, while seeking to reconvict an innocent confessor who had already been exonerated by DNA, referred to me on the record as the insufferable Dr. Kasson. I've done battle in court, on stage, in print, with those who train detectives in the kinds of trickery and deceit that con innocent people to confess. 
I was berated and threatened by fringe bloggers belonging to Amanda Knox hate group after writing in support of her ultimately successful appeal in Italy. I've seen cases in which medical examiners literally rewrote their autopsy reports after police disclose a suspect had confessed. In each case, the pathologist appeared in court adding independent medical corroboration for a confession that had corrupted their judgment. This book is all about why innocent men and women intensely stressed and befuddled by the promises, threats, trickery, and deception of a police interrogation are duped into confession, no matter how horrific the crime. So we look forward to meeting Dr. Saul Kasson in the new year. That's a little taste of his new book called Duped. I'd like to close by thanking everyone who was my guest this year. Your personal stories affected me deeply. I hope the same is true for my listeners. Join me in 2023 for more inspiring podcasts. And thank you for listening and sharing part of your day with us. Take care. Happy New Year from Pursuing Justice and me, Harriet. And Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, and I'm your host, Harriet.